Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. I don't know if you guys have, um, have ever heard this phrase, uh, but it's a drumbeat that I have heard now for decades, well, not two whole decades, pretty close, of knowing Jesus. Um, and the drumbeat goes like this. I love Jesus, but not the church. Have you heard that phrase? Maybe you've said that phrase. When I talk to people about my faith, where I've, I've shared uh, my faith with, with people who are far from Jesus, one of the things that I have found in people who don't know Jesus is they're actually more fond of Jesus than they are of the church. I mean, have you, have you seen that? Like, as you share your faith, as you talk about your relationship with God, have you seen that people are more fond of Jesus than they are the church? And, and I think people struggle with this idea to figure out what the relationship is supposed to be between following Jesus and being a part of the church. Like, how do these two things go together? And people have a hard time understanding that. And for so many people that I've talked to when I share my faith with people is the connection seems unnecessary. People think the connection is just unnecessary. It doesn't really make sense. And it it doesn't really seem necessary. And our evangelism efforts often don't help. They sort of undermine our own best intention to connect Jesus and the church for people because what we say is all you have to do is believe in Jesus and pray this prayer and you will be saved. And so people are like, sounds great. Let's pray the prayer. We pray the prayer and then we say, now you need to get connected to a church. And people go, why? That wasn't what the invitation was. The invitation was salvation in Jesus. Why do I need to be a part of a church? And it feels like a staple on to what we've been offering. The connection is not immediately evident. And of course, then we sort of say, well, you know, if you want to grow, if you want to become, you know, someone, someone who's more like Jesus, and people are like, I didn't know that that was the intent. That's not what you told me, is that I would be more like Jesus. You told me I was going to be saved. And yet now somehow the church comes in, and it feels like this stapled on idea. Can't I just enjoy salvation on my own? Like, that's what you offered me, right? Eternal life with Jesus. Why do I need the church? And you know, what's worse is over the past couple of years, the pandemic happened and Christians forgot what the relationship between the church and Jesus was. Like we sort of got lost in that. It's like, well, okay, my church doesn't meet anymore or they're meeting only online. And what's the point of this whole connection? Why, why, why do we go to church? I actually like getting up and, you know, sitting in my pajamas, eating my pancakes and watch church on TV, Right. And we've sort of like, and then whenever we talk to people and they're like, well, what does the church have to do with Jesus? And you're like, I mean, half the Christians are like, I'm not really sure. This seems like a pretty sweet deal. We get up, crowd around the TV and eat waffles and listen to somebody talk, right? And what's worse, we have live stream, right? Like technology has made this thing even, even easier to do that with. It's like, well, why do I need to be a part of a church? Can't I just be a Christian? And not go to church? It seems easier. 
I don't like the interpersonal relationship stuff because it seems like somebody's always mad at somebody else and somebody offended me and somebody said something that bothered me and this guy votes that way and this lady votes the other way and I don't like talking about either of them and it just seems easier if I would just stay home and watch it online. Can't I just do that? Can we be a Christian and not be a part of a church? What's that relationship? So that's what I want to look at today. We began this series called Love and Truth a few weeks ago going through the book of 1 John. And it, what, what I've been saying is the Apostle John is addressing this church that has undergone a church split. And it's a it's network of house churches, and they've sort of in, experienced this church split where a group of false teachers left and took some people with them. And John is writing to this church for two reasons. And he's trying to do two things at the same time. What he's trying to do on the one hand is he's trying to say, guys, you're okay. Here's the foundation that we're built, that this whole thing is based on. It's all about Jesus. That's the one side. But the other thing he's trying to do at the same time is he's trying to say, these teachers were teaching false things. Let me make sure to show you why they're wrong, that he's re rebutting these, these false teachers. And so uh, as he's doing this, uh, he's trying to do both things at the same time. And last, or the first week, we talked about how all Christian fellowship is based on Jesus, right? We talked about that was the, the, the foundation of any Christian fellowship is nothing other than Jesus. That's the base of all of it. That we can't build it on anything else, that it's only Jesus. And last week, we talked about how the fact that we all sin. That's actually what makes the Christian fellowship based on Jesus, is all of us are sinners, and yet at the same time, Jesus rescues us. And so that's what actually is the foundation of our fellowship, that we all sin, but yet Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. And we talked about that a lot last week. This week, what we're going to talk about is the fact that knowing God means loving other believers. Knowing God means loving other believers, that when we come to this Christian fellowship that's based on Jesus, we don't tolerate these people, but we actually love them. We actually genuinely love them. And I'm calling this message, I love Jesus and the church. I love Jesus and the church. And so let's pray. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 2. So Lord, I do just invite you to come. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill me today. And God, as we talk about what this looks like to, to love other believers, Lord, I pray that this would, uh, would be a message that shapes us, God. God, that your word would continue to shape us into people who actually do love like Jesus does. Lord, would you give me grace to speak only your words? Fill this place with your presence, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to just pick it right where we left off. That will be verse 3. Here is what we read. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, 
Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I've repeatedly said in this series that, that John's, uh, John's opponents, the people he's, he's dealing with, are, are teaching an early form of Gnosticism. This is sort of a, a, a it's not a religion as, as uh, per se, but it's sort of a way of thinking. So if you go looking for Gnosticism, the word Gnosticism really is not a separate religion. What it actually is is the way scholars would describe a pattern of thinking about faith and about religion. And so these guys were teaching this, this uh, Gnostic idea. It comes from the word gnosis, which means knowledge. And so what they were saying is, we have secret knowledge. That Gnosticism is secret knowledge that people claim to have. And what ends up happening with Gnosticism is that it sort of creates hierarchy of people. It creates uh, some who are in and some who are out. Some who have the secret knowledge and some who don't. And so what it always does, what Gnosticism always does, is it creates division within groups of people. And so having secret knowledge means there are some who are in and there are some who are out, and that's actually what ended up happening here. In this section, John is turning their knowledge against them. And you'll notice this as we look at verse 3. He uses this word know over and over, and it's intentionally pointed. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, does not do it and does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Basically, what John is doing is he's saying these guys claim to know things that are secret knowledge. And we said the first week that the secret knowledge is that we don't actually have to have uh, Jesus to have a relationship with God. This is the, the secret teaching, the secret knowledge that we don't need to have a relationship with Jesus. We can just have a relationship with God. And what he says in this, he's building this platform that here in, uh, in a couple of verses, he's going to use to display the error of their teaching. He says this, he says, to know God is to love God and to love God is to obey God. To know God is to love God and to love God is to obey God. How many of you have heard of the book by Gary Chapman, The, the Five Love Languages? You guys know that book? Most of you don't know that book. Okay. Uh, it's a book that, that basically the, the premise of the book is that people receive love in one of seemingly five different ways, okay? And so maybe they're acts of service or maybe they're words of affirmation or they're gifts. I feel like our love languages have in the 18 years we've been married, has like changed five times. Um, <laughs> she started out as gifts and now she's not. I don't know how that works, but um, it's a moving target. Um, anyway, <laughs> at some level, this idea uh, is, is that like if you love someone in a way that they don't receive love, then it really doesn't count. You sort of spin your wheels. It's like, I do all these acts of service. And it's like, well, she doesn't care about that. And you guys have probably seen that in your relationships, right? Like, if you are someone who just does work and acts of service for someone and over and over, it's like, I've been serving them like crazy. And what they really want you to do is buy them a gift, right? 
So there's this idea of if you don't love the person according to their love language, you'll, you won't, uh, your love doesn't count in some way. I don't know. It's a little bit of an odd thing. But the beautiful thing here is like that it, it sort of gives a language to the way that people love each other. Well, if we were going to talk about God, God's love language is obedience. God's love language is obedience. That's not to say that God can't or doesn't receive love in other ways. But what John says in verse 5, he says, If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. You know, we worship and we love God that way. And we say we love God. We say that we love him. But the way that he really receives love is obedience. And, you know, that's, that's a weird thing to say, right? Like, you go, well, that's odd. I don't really, you know, I just want to love God sort of like the way I want to love God. But the way God receives love is obedience. Why does he have to be, why does he have to be a love language of obedience? Why can't he just be acts of service? I like doing things. Just the things I want to do. Right? I like doing things, not necessarily his things. I want to do the things I want to do and say, hey, count this for me, will you? But it's no different in person-to-person relationships, is it? Is it any different in person? Let me, let me give you an example. So Jerry and I just recently, we do this uh, marriage coaching thing, and part of the marriage, those of you who have been through it, um, have, we, we have these conversations, and we demonstrate how to have conversations about conflict and, and things like that, right? But we demonstrate, like, live examples. Like, Jerry and I don't, like, have, like, the, the pattern ones that we've sort of, like, we know, and it looks really, like, sterile. We actually, like, whenever it comes to, like, things that should change in our relationship, we take that opportunity to, like, actually talk about things that should change in our relationship, which is actually interesting. We had this conversation the other night, and one of the things that uh, the way that I think and the way that I act and the way that I am is I love to start things. That's what made church planting a thing for me, right? Like, at some level, I love to start new things. And I do that around the house all the time. I have started so many new things around our house. I have a basement full of new things that I've started. The beautiful thing is there's a door, so she can't see them all. But she could go down there, I guess. But I start new things all the time. And what I, what I learned the other night, and I guess I sort of knew this, is it drives her crazy that I start new things and I never finish the new things. I've started a whole bunch of new things, and I have a whole laundry list, I need to make that list, of the the new things that I've started that are not done. And so I have a, a, you know, a smoker that I've been working on for a little while. I sanded the barrel down. I have the parts. I haven't put it together. I have a lawnmower engine I've been working on for probably 14 years. It's one washer away. It's one washer away. And I got the washer finally. Um, it's just a matter of putting it back together. Right? I have all of these things that I've started that I haven't finished. And so in our conversation, she said, you know, I really wish you would stop starting new, t- new things until you finish the things you've already done. And I was like, hmm, that seems reasonable. And she said, and then once you get the list of things that you're already done, before you start new things, it would be probably a good thing for you to like plot out what the steps are of the new thing and how long you think they're going to take. Like those of you who did the home church stuff at my house, you guys know how long it took me to finish the kitchen? It is done pretty much now. But so I was like, well, that seems reasonable. 
I mean, this is just a, a, a it's, it, I wouldn't even say command. This is a thing she desires that I would like make a plan, say how long it's going to take, and then do that plan, right? Don't start any new projects. And so something can happen at this point, right? I can decide, well, you know, that's what she wants, and, you know, I'll do my own thing, and we'll figure it out. But, like, would that be loving to her? Like, how would she receive it if she said, hey, would you do these things? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do these things. And she says, and then I just do whatever I want. It would seem unloving, wouldn't it? It would seem unloving. If I choose not to do this, what I'm saying is, I don't love you. I know this is what you want. I don't love you. I'm not going to do that. That's what that communicates. And it has the effect of breaking the relationship. Does it not? But if I live into doing the thing that she has asked, and I'm committed to it, like I'm actually committed to doing this thing, I'm, I'm committed to not starting any new projects, I'm committed to making a plan, even if I fall short on the way, she'll have grace for me. And the reason is because I'm communicating love by trying to do the thing that she asked me to do, right? Makes sense. Seems logical, right? Those of you who are married, this would be the same thing for you. It's the same way for God. God says, hey, you should do this. You should live this way. And we say we love God. But then when he says, here's the way that you can love me, you can be kind to your neighbor. You can love them. I'm like, well, but you don't know my neighbor, though. My neighbor's, I mean, I have a new neighbor now, but you don't know, we just sort of like pretend like the things God has asked us to do is like, okay, we get a choice. But like God asks us to do these things and we do them because we love him. When we don't disregard the things he asks us to do, but instead we go, even if I don't like it, because I love, I don't like the idea of making a list, quite honestly, but I'm going to do it. Does this make sense? That the way we love God is very similar to the way we love people. And that if I press forward into the things God asks me to do and live with intention, if I fall short, like we said last week, we have an atoning sacrifice. God will have grace for you. God will have grace for me. There's grace for us if we live into this way. It's a committed heart posture of obedience that God actually desires. It's commitment to living in obedience. When you discover something new that God is asking of you, your commitment to living into that is the way that you love him. And here's the deal. When you live this way, where your inclination is always to obey, you'll discover that intimacy with God grows. That when you do what he says, he likes that. I'll tell you this much. If I make the list... And I don't start any new projects. Intimacy between me and my wife is going to grow. The same thing happens with God. If I do the things that God asks, and it's from this intimacy that God will shape us into the person or the people that we were created to be. Some of us imagine that if we begin to like live this way and say, everything that God says to me, I'm going to be obedient to. Some of us have this fear that it means that God's going to say, all right, now that I have your ear, go plant a church. Now that I have your ear, go to Africa and become a missionary and sell everything you own. 
Most of the time, that's not the way it happens. I mean, God's free to do whatever he wants. But if I'm honest, if you have not been, you don't have any track record of obedience with God, first of all, he's probably going to build a track record before he sends you to some other country. Secondly, I don't know of a responsible leader in the world who would let you go do that and send you to go do that until you've established a track record of obedience to the Lord. So that's a fear that we have, but it doesn't start that way. Obedience to God doesn't start that way. It starts by being obedient to what you know. It starts by the very, very simple stuff. Like this whole book is full of things that God intends that you can live into. And you can start there. Like everybody's afraid like, oh, if I listen to God, he might say something I don't like. He probably already has. <laughs> I mean, I don't get very far in this book before I find myself going, I don't like that. And yet I'm committed to obedience. I'm committed to live that way, that whenever God says something, I just do it. You begin by loving your neighbors. Choose to be honest, even when it costs you, right? Don't we all sort of not want to do that? It's like, well, if I say this, that means I have to do it, so I'm going to just sort of fudge the truth a little bit, and nobody will know. Choose to be honest, even when it costs you. Choose to be generous, even when it costs you. Instead of always trying to defend your reputation, the Bible says God will defend you. Choose to believe that. Instead of feeling like I have to protect my own reputation, maybe you live as an obedient child of God and God defends you. Don't we all want to just sort of polish our reputation and make sure that they don't have it right. They're not saying the right things. Let me go fix them. Maybe we choose to let God defend us. Maybe that's the step of obedience. Obedience to God is a lot like a muscle. Any of you go to the gym? Nobody? Okay. Well, let me tell you what the gym is like, since you don't know anything about it. Um, when you go to the gym, like, I, I, have you ever seen these, these people? I mean, they show them on TV because these guys look amazing, right? Like, I can do the thing, right? They go to lift these giant heavy weights. If you go to the gym for the first time, you don't start by lifting the heavy weights, you start by lots and lots and lots of reps on the lightweights until you develop a muscle that enables you to lift heavier weights until you get to the place where you can lift the heaviest weights. The same is true of obedience. God invites you to be obedient to the easy things. It's rep after rep after rep. It's I'm going to choose to be honest in this moment. I'm going to choose to be generous in this moment. God is asking me to be kind to my neighbor. I'm going to be kind to my neighbor. I'm going to go over and introduce myself to my new neighbor, even though I have other things to do, because God is inviting me to do this. And rep after rep after rep of basic obedience, so that when he says, I want you to sell your house and go plant a church, it's easy to do at that point because you've done it over and over and over and over. And so whatever he says, your default reaction is, I'm going to do it. It's always stark to me when I'm with Christians and we share our story about selling our house to move here to plant a church and they look at me like I'm crazy. So what else could I have done? I've been obedient to the Lord all along. I said to my neighbor across the street before we moved here, she was like, why are you selling your house? I feel like God told me to do it. Sell your house and go plant a church. And so I'm doing it. And she goes, but why? And I was like, I've just lived my life long enough in just surrender to God that I'm going to do whatever he says. And when he says, 
sell your house and go plant a church, if I choose to say no, I might as well say no to him altogether. I can't say yes all these times and live in obedience and then one day decide that it's now my choice. I live my whole life that way. I quit my career to do this now. And people look at us like, well, that seems scary, doesn't it? I'm like, yeah, it's terrifying. I think it's kind of crazy. It seems stupid. Like, I made a lot more money flying airplanes. But God said it. What else would I say? It's obedience, right? It's over and over and over. And every act of obedience along the way shapes you for a future act. You don't get to lift the heavy weight till you've lifted the light one enough times. Everybody wants, like, the other side of that coin, right, is some of you are afraid that God's going to ask you to do the big thing. Some of you want him to ask you to do the big thing, but you don't do the little thing. It's obedience. doesn't matter what question he asks you. If you say so, I will. That's the answer, right? That's the way we live this. That's the way it's supposed to be lived. Now, there's two ditches that you can fall into, though. If you think of a road, right, nice Motorcycle ride road, smooth, no rocks on it, and on both sides there's a ditch, right? The road is obedience out of love for God, that we obey because we love God. The one ditch is, I'm just going to love God, but I don't have to do anything he says. I'm just going to love God, but I don't have to do anything he says. And in the Bible, love demands action. You see, this is the big error that's supported by our culture, is that you can love people without it mattering what you do, that you can love without having to put this into action. It's belief that love is a feeling. It's asking someone to forgive you without committing to the steps to not fall that way again. It's sex without living into the lifelong commitment of marriage. It's saying, I I can do this because this is what feels right in the moment without committing to the long term. It's racial reconciliation that happens in public ceremony but isn't lived out in day-to-day relationship with people who are different than you. It's, I love you, but I'm only going to love you as far as I feel comfortable and it's easy for me. This This is what the culture tells us, right? This is how this works. This is how this is supposed to work. It's saying you love someone while at the same time breaking relationship with them. It's walking away from a group of people that you're committed to love and saying, hey, our love is undiminished, and yet we break relationship. And that's a pitfall. There is no love in the Bible without action that demonstrates it. And if you fall into this ditch, the culture around you will be certainly comfortable with you, right? It's, it's the kind of faith, it's the kind of belief that can be kept private because it does not make any demand on how you do relationship with people. It's, it's okay, I have a private kind of faith. Well, no, you just have a faith that doesn't demand that you live a certain way towards other people. And the culture around you will be perfectly comfortable with that because it doesn't bother them. And should you choose to say something about it, it's like, but it's okay. Like, it doesn't mean I have to live in any sort of way. What you will find is that over time, musical worship, if this is the way you live, musical worship will become less and less intimate until it becomes pointless. Because God will not allow lip service. 
you'll be like, wow, something's off about worship. And the first act is to blame the people on the stage, right? Something's just not right. Well, no. You can't just sing to God about worship when you live your life that says, I don't worship you. The second ditch, the ditch on the other side, is belief that somehow your obedience will make God love you more. Right? That it's, it's legalism. I put in my obedience into the machine and I pull the lever and what I get is God's love. The more obedience I put into the machine, the more God's love I get. This is the ditch on the other side. It says that I can earn God's love. It's sort of an attempt to make God obedient to me. I've put this in. You owe me now. I have done my part. You owe me now what I want. It's the error of the Pharisees. It's fruitless because God's love for you is not dependent at all on this. God's love is dependent on himself. Do you know that God will never love you more or less than he does today? Do you know that? Some of you are like, I think he's tricking me. I think he's kidding. No, I'm dead serious. God's love for you is not dependent on who you. It's dependent on him. It's his selfless love toward you. It's not dependent on your good action or bad action or inaction. God's love for you is not changing based on you. Love for God that leads to obedience to God is the narrow road between the two ditches. And, John says, it's the evidence that you know God. And I say all of that to set up this in the same way that John, John does. John wants the church to know that obedience to God is the evidence that one knows God. And the reason he wants to make this clear is because it exposes the error of the false teachers. Look at verse 9 with me. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. John says the reason the church can see the error of the false teachers is that their teaching has caused them to break fellowship with the church. Do you know false teaching always causes division? Always. Bad theology and false teaching always breaks fellowship with people. It always happens. And what John is saying here is that what has happened because of these teachers is these guys have decided to leave fellowship with their brothers and sisters. And when he says brothers and sisters, sometimes we go, is that like all of humanity? What he intends here is to say they have left brothers and sisters in Christ. False teaching always breaks fellowship. There's a story from early on in church history that sort of survives uh, to this day about John. Uh, John uh, stayed in Ephesus until he was really old and couldn't walk on his own. Uh, couldn't really teach much, couldn't say a whole lot. And so people would carry him to the church gatherings. And so he would get to the church gatherings. And of course, you know, the apostle John, if you can imagine, like I would go sit down if he was going to speak, right? The Apostle John would, would teach something in, the, in his older years. All he would ever say is, little children, little children love each other. Little children love each other. Little children love each other. And after a while, his disciples got really upset. Why don't you have any new teaching? And what he said is, because it is the Lord's command, and if it alone is kept, it is enough. 
In this story is captured what John to be believed to be true about the church, that loving one another was of utmost importance. The false teachers were trying to discredit John, though, and say, well, this is a new teaching. This is new. He, he's created this new thing, which is where the section of verses 7 and 8 come in. It says, dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing to you a new command, its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. It feels kind of contradictory, doesn't it? I'm not writing you a new command. I'm writing you an old command, and I'm writing you a new command. I feel a little like I don't know what to do with that. What John is referring to is, at first, is Leviticus 19.18, where God, his command to his people says this. He says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. John says this is something God always desired. It's always been a command to God's people to love one another. It's not like the Old Testament is like angry God and the New Testament is happy, you know, gray-bearded grandpa God who's just nice to everybody. It's not that way. God has always desired that we love one another. So it's an old command, but at the same time, it's a new command because Jesus reiterates it in John 13. He says this, and he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The point John is trying to make is that loving one another is not his own idea. I didn't make this up. This isn't my idea. Loving one another is a command that God has always given, and this is precisely the point. We build all the foundation about obedience so that John can say they're disobedient to God. Their teaching is false because they don't love their brother and sister. They don't obey the command to love their brothers and sisters in the church, and so that's how we know. Like I said, false teaching always breaks fellowship. Always. It creates ins and outs. It always breaks fellowship. God has always and will always command us to love other Christians, which is why the thing that we do at this Saturate thing tonight is important. Like if you look around at each other, it's probably, for most of you, I won't presume, it's probably easy to love each other here, right? Like we know each other pretty well. Some of you are like, I'm not that guy. It's a whole different thing to show up in the entire body of Christ and say, we love each other. We're going to gather six, seven hundred people downtown from all different church congregations. We love each other. Choosing to separate ourselves is sort of an evidence that our teaching is false, right? That what ought to happen is that we ought to love each other. It's important what we do. I'll finish this way. Love requires two things. Connection and action. Love requires connection and action. Let me take them one at a time. First, let's talk about connection. We live at a time where you can sit in your house and get the best preaching ever. And next to that, you can get mine. It's on a podcast. You can sit and listen to all the best teachers. You can listen to N.T. Wright. You can listen to... Um, uh, Tim Keller, any, any of the best preachers in the world, listen to him. And not only can you listen to him at church time, you can listen to him whenever you want, right? You can get the best preaching in the world. 
At the same time, you can flip over to YouTube or any number of, of streaming services, and you can get the best worship ever with professional bands who have, like, pitch correction devices. You didn't know that was a thing. Like the people who sing off-key, and then this little device fixes it for them. Right? So we can get, like, the best of everything. And we live at this time where we can go, well, then what do I need to go be with other people who follow Jesus for? Why, why would I do that, right? Like, if, even if we had a live stream, if we had a live stream here, you could go, well, I'm t- even tuning in to this church at the right time. The thing that's missing is the one another's of the Bible. You can't practice the one another's when you're sitting at home. And what do I mean by the one another's? You can't serve one another when you're at your house by yourself. You can't forgive one another when you're on your own. That's the, that's the one we don't want, right? I don't want to be part of a church because that means I'm going to have to forgive. We can't uh, bear one another's burdens. We can't subject, one another, uh, subject ourselves to one another on our own. You can't encourage one another on your own. You can't be hospitable to one another on your own. And most importantly, and it covers all the rest, you can't love one another on your own. You see, love is not something you can do at a distance. It requires connection. It requires you're actually connected to the person. It's the being together that matters. But it goes even further than just being in attendance at a worship gathering, right? It's actually being deeply connected to the people around you. It's like knowing their names and knowing their stories. And understanding the ways that you can actually love them and the ways you can actually serve them, the ways you can actually care about them, the ways you can actually bear their burdens. It's one of the beautiful things I love about when people have kids in this church and we rally around them and we give them meals for a while. You can't do that on a live stream. You just can't. The point is that you're deeply connected with those that you live life with. We've bought into this idea that the church is the place that you go to to receive religious goods and services. And it doesn't really matter which one you go to as long as you go to one, right? Get your religious goods and services. But the reality is that if you make it your habit to constantly search for the best one, the one that serves you the best, the one that has all the programs that you want, what you actually exempt yourself is from knowing one another and being known by others. You actually exempt yourself from the best of Christian fellowship. And if you found the perfect church, which uh, I'll burst some of your bubble, um, as much as I love this one, this is not the perfect church. If you ever find the perfect church, don't go there, you'll ruin it. Right? Like every one of us brings our brokenness into whatever community we show up into. Turns out the broken situations that we live into, we're, we're the common denominator of all the brokenness. Right? What that means is that your best energy would be spent on finding a body of people who center their Christian fellowship on Jesus, or should be based on this, finding a, a, a body of people who center their, faith, or their Christian fellowship on Jesus and saying, I'm going to walk alongside with you. I'm just going to walk with you, which leads me to the second thing, action. The body of believers, the church is supposed to be a body where we mutually serve one another. Do you know that if you show up in this community over and over and over and over again, waiting for someone to serve you, you actually miss the best part? 
you actually miss the best part of Christian fellowship, which is serving one another. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.